So I was going to give you a really interesting lecture on management of mild to moderate uh, atopic dermatitis, but unfortunately Matt told nobody to, to listen to such a topic, so I had to change topics here. Um, so we'll do contact dermatitis and uh, some points on patch testing. So I have no relevant disclosures. Raise your hand if you're currently doing any type of patch testing. True test. Okay, good. Good, a lot of the group. And then how about raise your hand if you're doing more than just patch testing, so an expanded test. Okay, perfect. Um, I wanted to point out a couple nice resources. If you're doing any kind of patch testing, these are books you probably want to have in your clinic. So the book on the left is probably the best reference resource. That's Fisher's Contact Dermatitis. The two on the right are nice quick reads with a lot of clinical pearls. A couple other things that I think are very useful. The rxlist.com is a nice website that'll give you ingredients for the prescription medications. And then the walgreens.com and the drugstore.com are nice places to find ingredients for over-the-counter products. You also need to have access to one of these databases. So we have CARD, the Contact Allergen Replacement Database, and then we have CAMP, so the Contact Allergen Management Program. The CAMP is the one that's supported by the American Contact Dermatitis Society. Either of these will allow you to go in, um, enter in the allergen that your patient is allergic to or the group of allergens, and generate a list of safe alternatives. So if they're allergic to fragrance and you want to recommend shampoos, you enter fragrance in and it gives you a list of not only shampoos but conditioners, soaps, and, and the like. If you're a member of the American Contact Dermatitis Society, then you have free access to this as well as their journal, and it's an extremely reasonable cost. I think it's, it's well worth your money. So really the goal of this talk is to try to give you an algorithmic approach, a um, kind of systematic way to walk into a room and look at a patient and say, is this contact dermatitis? And if it is, how do I explain it to my patient? And what are some empiric recommendations that I can do even before patch testing? So I often get pulled into a room and I get asked, um, do you think this is contact dermatitis? Because that's what I do, and it seems like everybody thinks I can turn anything into contact dermatitis. Uh, so the, the things I ask is, I want to know, does the morphology fit? Do the symptoms fit? And is the location plausible? So we'll kind of step through each of these. You know, the, the first thing is, is uh, you know, there's this inclination that if something is really hard to treat and it's lasting forever, um, maybe it's contact dermatitis, even if it's a pseudo-lymphomatous reaction, or if it's an urticarial reaction, or if it's a psoriasiform reaction. But you don't want to get in the habit of jumping to that first and thinking that contact dermatitis can be anything. I mean, it's really an eczematous dermatitis. That's your prototypical reaction. And remember that it's acute, subacute, and chronic, and that this is a spectrum. So when you see any given patient, they may fall anywhere along this spectrum. And where they're at will determine, to some degree, how they're managed. So if someone comes in with a really acute vesicular poison ivy that's generalized, you're talking systemic steroids, cool compresses, as opposed to your patient that's got that chronic plaque of dermatitis related to their belt buckle, you're talking more topical steroids. So this is a, a nice codochrome. This is a really acute eczematous reaction. You see a ton of edema. You see a lot of vesiculation and serum crusting. I like this codochrome because this highlights a paraphenylene diamine patient that we had. Paraphenylene diamine can be an extremely robust allergic reaction. And remember that it's not only inheritized, but it's also in these temporary henna tattoos. It's used to make that tattoo darker and last longer. It also highlights that a lot of things that are put on the scalp don't present with the scalp localized dermatitis. The skin is thicker there with the hair, 
the scalp is often resistant to a lot of contact dermatitis. Instead, these patients present with things lower down, so eyelid or face or neck patterns, and we'll go through some of those patterns. Subacute is just that transition state between the two. And then this is a, a nice example of a chronic eczematous uh, reaction. So instead of seeing those vesicles and that uh, prominent edema, you see a lot of thickening, hyperpigmentation, scaling, you know, what we call lichenification. This is a patient with atopic dermatitis, and this is a particular pattern on the face that we published in the Journal of Dermatitis called the beak sign. So the beak sign is when you see a lot of dermatitis around the peripheral of the face, but you have this marked sparing of the nose. And if you see a patient with that, think of atopic dermatitis and then look into other co-founding factors. So this is usually someone that's extremely itchy and, and they're rubbing and they're getting lichen simplex chronics all around the periphery of the face. And these patients are often very sensitive to airborne allergens and irritants. So things like fragrance and, and dust are a, a big problem for these patients. You may say, well, isn't this the same as the headlight sign? Uh, the headlight sign is similar. The headlight sign is seen in atopic dermatitis, but that is just um, pallor around the nose and mouth without active dermatitis. So this is kind of a step beyond that. And then this is another example of a chronic eczematous reaction. So this is that pathognomonic lesion of nickel allergic contact dermatitis. And I love this Kodachrome because it shows these little papules kind of spreading out from the primary plaque, and those are called scratch papules. So real similar to the satellite uh, pustules of Canada, but these are eczematous papules spreading out that are excoriated. If you see that, you really want to have a high suspicion for an allergic process. If you think about the patients that you see with lichen simplex chronicus, it's very well demarcated plaques. You don't see these papules spreading out. And the reason you'll see these spreading out is because it's a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction and the process isn't as well demarcated. One of the big questions that often comes up, and I think Matt touched on this a little bit, is can you look at a lesion based on morphology and differentiate irritant versus allergic? And unfortunately, it, it's not that easy. Um, there are a couple things that you want to look at first, and if you can see these features, then it favors an irritant process. So if you can see the skin looking very glazed, um, if it has a very chapped appearance, follicular pustules, puts you down a different road. So allergic contact dermatitis really doesn't have pustules and particularly not follicular pustules. Irritant contact can, uh, but then also you're thinking about infectious processes. And then something that's extremely well demarcated suggests irritant or other process. So I think one of the terms that isn't talked about quite as frequently as it should be is a concept called hybrid dermatitis. Hybrid dermatitis is a way to describe a patient's clinical phenotype that is multifactorial in origin. So it, it is in part endogenous and in part exogenous, or in part genetic, in part environmental. And we see this a ton. We see a lot of patients in our patch test clinic that have atopic dermatitis and have allergic contact dermatitis. And so when we send them out, if we tell them you're allergic to fragrance and you're allergic to cocomidopropyl betaine, avoid these and they think that if they avoid that for a month, their rash is gone, they're not gonna believe what you did and they're gonna have a suboptimal clinical outcome. So really what we have to do is we have to say, you have an allergic contact dermatitis, you need to avoid these so that then your atopic dermatitis can be more manageable and you can adhere to your atopic regimen and your skin can be well controlled. So we've walked in the room and we look at the rash and we say, yeah, the morphology fits, this could be contact dermatitis. 
The next thing we want to hit on is what are the symptoms? So the big quick down and dirty points are ask your patient, does this predominantly itch or, or does this predominantly sting and burn? And if they say predominantly sting and burn, then get a time. So if your patient tells you that every time they put their facial moisturizer on, immediately it stings and burns, that's an irritant contact dermatitis. You don't see a delayed type allergic contact dermatitis burning and stinging within two to five minutes. So we've looked at something, we've said, yeah, morphology fits, yep, the symptoms fit. So you wanna have some kind of an approach that you can make a reasonably quick and effective thought process on these because these patients can turn into a time suck. You know, if you sit there and you just say, I think you're allergic to something, what are you putting on it? And they say nothing, and you say, what are you putting on it? And they say nothing. But this is a back and forth that's just endless. So what we'll do is we'll look at some regional-based patterns that will let you say, look, this is a pattern that is commonly seen with an allergic process, and it's commonly seen from shampoos, conditioners, cosmetics, and rings. I'm gonna have you stop these, and we'll go from there. So we'll do the eyelids first. So when I look at a patient with eyelid dermatitis, I try to put them as close as I can into one of these three primary patterns, and you should have all of this in your handout. Um, an upper eyelid pattern, a lower eyelid pattern, and then what I call a circumferential eyelid pattern. So the upper eyelid pattern, to me, is the pattern that I see the most. It's the pattern that I think is the most likely to be that hybrid presentation, so a patient that has a component of an atopic dermatitis or a component of seborrheic dermatitis. Um, and my differential, I think of atopic subderm, think of psoriasis, I think of lichen simplex chronicus. If your eyes have ever itched, you know that once you start scratching, it's just this perpetual endless itching. Um, I think of allergic and irritant contact. And then I always make sure that I go through something to rule out dermatomyositis. You know, the pictures that you see of the heliotrope rash and dermatomyositis is fairly easy. It's a very violaceous eruption. But I tell you, it can be extremely subtle. Um, and, and so with my eyelid dermatitis patients, I ask them about fatigue. I ask them about muscle weakness, arthritis. Um, I do an exam of the dorsal hands to look for Gotrans papules. I do a dermatoscopic exam of the nail folds to look for any dilated capillaries. And if I see anything that concerns me, then I do some screening tests. And then I'll go through, um, I want to get it to a predominant of itching, a lot of edema. If I'm thinking allergic, I love to hear that they have a lot of really robust episodic flares. Um, I like it to be somebody that's treatment refractory. So somebody that's a treatment naive patient, I'm not jumping to patch testing straight away. Um, and then also if somebody's had a dermatized for years and years, and then all of a sudden their standard treatment stops working, I'm thinking more an allergic process. So um, here's a couple of clinical pictures. The patient on the left is a patient that I saw in my patch test clinic. And then the patient on the right is a picture out of the atlas uh, of contact dermatitis. So how this whole algorithmic approach works is if you can recognize a pattern, then you can recognize a group of products that go with that pattern. So the group of products that go with an upper eyelid dermatitis pattern, as Matt mentioned in his practice, the most common thing he sees, shampoo, similar with my practice, things that are applied to the scalp. So shampoos, conditioners, hair dyes, not typically just an eyelid dermatitis, but uh, they fit into that category. Ectopic allergens are these things that inadvertently or um, the patient is unaware that they're getting onto the eyelids. So nail cosmetics, meaning nail polish and jewelry, meaning rings, 
and gold being the primary thing that we talk about in rings. And then things that are directly applied, so cosmetics and cosmetic applicators, you know, the big thing, nickel in um, eyelash curlers, some of the rubber compounds in um, cosmetic applicators. So this would be our patient. We tell her, look, your pattern fits a pattern that we see with um, some patients that have an allergic process. I always have my patients bring all their products in for patch testing. So I look through her products and I say straight away, you have a ton of stuff that you're using, but I think that you're allergic to your shampoo or your conditioner because that is the most common thing that I see with this pattern. So then we do patch testing, and this is her patch test result. I'm sorry if that reaction is kind of bleached out with the lights. She had a two plus positive reaction to methyl chloroisothiazolone, methyl isothiazolone, which was one of the allergens of the year recently. So methyl chloroisothiazolone, methyl isothiazolone is a very relevant positive reaction. If you find a patient that tests positive to this allergen, uh, you really look hard for the source because it's not something like thimerosal where they react, but it doesn't matter much. If they're reacting to this, chances are they're getting into it and it's causing problems. So sure enough, we pull up her shampoo and conditioner, and they both got it, um, MCI, MI, and she gets better with avoidance. So then that's how you kind of apply this algorithmic approach. So now we'll go to the next pattern, just the inverse pattern where you have predominantly lower eyelids involved. If you see this pattern, you're happy because it's a fairly easy, straightforward pattern. A lot of the time, it's an allergic process, especially if you have a lot of edema and you have that kind of streaking to the lateral side. Uh, so this is an example of a patient that was reacting to the preservative in her eye drops, benzylconium chloride. And here you have a fairly limited um, source profile. So the big thing are topical ophthalmic, ophthalmic uh, solutions, so eye drops being the big one. So if they come in and they tell you that they're using a neomycin eye drop from their eye doc, I mean, you're almost home free. You just call the eye doc, see if there's an alternative. You probably don't even have to get to patch testing. Um, you also have to think about eye cosmetics um, and applicators. And here, sometimes you'll get those ectopic allergens that come in play, nail cosmetics and jewelry. There's a lot of debate on how relevant is, is gold. You know, if you look back far enough in the literature, on eyelid dermatitis, you're gonna see gold as the number one positive patch test. There are some thoughts that the gold in the rings gets leached out with application of sunscreens and moisturizers and it kind of abrades the metal and then when you touch your eyelids, it gets transferred there. There are also a lot of people that think that gold is just a really strong um, reactant in the skin but not particularly relevant. So um, I would say that a lot of people that are doing patch testing now aren't patch testing to gold on a routine basis and it was dropped off of some of the standard series. For me, I still patch test all my eyelid dermatitis patients to gold. So then the third pattern that I look for is a circumferential eyelid pattern. Um, and I think this pattern is distinct in a couple ways. When I see this pattern, I look to see if I see papules and pustules. And if I see that, then, then I'm thinking periorificial dermatitis um, and that it may be driven by Demodex overgrowth. And then I'm also thinking of things that are really itchy. So lichen simplex chronicus, um, patients that have atopic dermatitis, and I'm thinking of if it's an allergic process, um, could it potentially be an arrow allergen? So this is a patient that um, has that circumferential eyelid pattern. And then your product profile are things that are directly applied and ectopic allergens. So similar to an upper eyelid pattern, although these patients seem to be more reactive, and they get a more uniform distribution. 
This is the, the type of patient that I really like to see because it's extremely lichenified. Uh, she came into our office just miserable. She'd been battling this forever and ever. Um, and when I see that circumferential pattern that is really lichenified, I put them on an empiric regimen of protopic ointment. I do cetirizine in the morning and then I get something as sedating as I can get in the evening. So hydroxyzine is usually where I start. Um, I go ahead and get them on a real mild empiric regimen of free and clear shampoo and conditioner and banana cream soap. And this was her at three weeks. I mean, she was thrilled. She didn't have to undergo patch testing. She had just primarily lichen simplex chronicus with an underlying atopic dermatitis. And I think any patient that has eyelid dermatitis, this is a great regimen to start on. So again, here's a circumferential eyelid pattern. This is the one with papules and pustules. So when you see this, the first thing I do is I get a pair of pickups and I pluck a couple eyelashes. It's not as painful as that sounds. Uh, and I do a mineral oil prep. And if you can see these, these little banana-shaped bodies hanging off the hair, then you're in that category of periorificial dermatitis um, driven by edemodex overgrowth. So my, my thoughts on this disease process is it's similar to staph um, on atopic dermatitis where staph overgrowth will drive and fuel the fire. I don't necessarily think that this is the pure cause. I think these patients have a subtype of rosacea but they won't get better if you don't treat the Demodex. So this is what we do. We do ivermectin 12 milligrams once a week, um, and I also put them on doxycycline because of the anti-inflammatory effects, um, similar to what you would do for ocular rosacea, and she did great. So in your handout, I put a summary of a paper with some clinical pearls after each region that discuss these patterns. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time going over that for you. It's just food for thought after the talk. I think these are helpful. So based on regions, you can do some empiric recommendations. I generally phrase things to my patients when I ask them to stop all their current products. I say we're temporarily stopping these products because if you tell them that they're banned from all cosmetics and all fragrance products, uh, you kind of lose them. That's just not, nobody can do that. So we'll say, I want you to temporarily stop all your current products and cosmetics. Um, for the eyelids in particular, I do like to have them avoid any shellac or acrylic nails. Nail polish is probably not as big a deal, but there is a product Clure nail polish that's acceptable. It's free of all the common allergens. It's kind of an interesting name. It's derived from clean and pure, and they have a lot of uh, hypoallergenic products. Again, hair dye is probably not the biggest thing in this pattern, but I still just tell them, don't dye your hair till we see you back in a month. Make sure you're doing fine. Um, the eye drops, I ask them to stop anything that's not necessary, and if there's something I'm concerned about that they need, I'll call the eye doc and try to find a better alternative. If they just are doing it for lubrication, there's a nice option, this Tears Natural uh, free lubricant eye drops that's hypoallergenic. I prefer free and clear shampoo, uh, Banana Cream Cleansing Bar, and then oral antihistamines, again, because the eyes get very itchy. Um, I prefer protopic ointment. While I completely 100% agree that I think there's essentially no risk to low strength topical corticosteroids, because I see so many patients with eyelid dermatitis, I have a lot of patients that are older. I've had a couple of patients come back and say, I've got glaucoma now and you gave me topical steroids. And I, as much as you try to explain to them, yes, you have glaucoma, this is common in this age group, I just would rather not have that talk. And I think protopic ointment does fine, so that's my go-to of choice. And then I like, uh, van apply ointment as well. And so my general thing is, I see the patients back in one month, and if they're clear, then we're good. We almost never move to patch testing after this. 
and I tell them, um, you can reintroduce products, but I want you to do one every two weeks, and I explain to them that allergic contact dermatitis is a very sluggish process, so it's not easy to know if something's causing a problem. It's not you put it on and you see a result in 30 minutes. Um, I show them how to do a repeat open application test. So anything that's a leave-on product, I tell them they can put it on the antecubital fossa twice a day for five to seven days before they put it on their face. So if they get a rash, they don't have a rash on their eyelids and they'll know that product's not safe. If they don't clear up like we think they should or if they have a lot of difficulty with reintroducing some products, then we move to patch testing. So you may say, well, you know, what about some of the other common things that we use? So I like Dove uh, bar soap. I do that for most of my just atopic patients. I think there are a couple pitfalls with Dove. If you just tell a patient Dove unscented bar soap, they're probably going to end up at least 50-50 chance with just the Dove beauty bar. And the Dove beauty bar has fragrance and it has cocomatopropyl betaine. Um, the unscented, of course, is fragrance-free. And cocomatopropyl betaine, the reason I don't like Dove for eyelid dermatitis is because cocomatopropyl betaine is one of the big problems in the shampoos. And then everybody thinks that uh, Johnson's uh, and Johnson's baby shampoo is the most gentle thing on earth. Of course, it has cocomatopropyl betaine, has fragrance, has a really strong formaldehyde releaser, quaternium 15. Um, Eucerin, we use a lot. I, I think Eucerin is a great product, but the original healing cream does have MCI, MI in it, and lanolin. And then Aquaphor ointment has lanolin and bisabolo. Probably not a huge deal, but lanolin is a higher uh, reactivity rate in patients with atopics. So that's why I go with the Vanaply ointment. So now we'll hit the next pattern, uh, the face. So again on the face, I try to fit patients the best I can into one of these three patterns. We'll do a patchy central facial pattern, a rinse off pattern, and then just a confluent erythema. So it's similar to eyelids and then you have two that are the inverse and then you have one that's involving everywhere. So the patchy central facial pattern is similar to that upper eyelid dermatitis where this is the pattern you're going to see more often. It's the pattern that has a broader differential diagnosis. Um, here you're thinking things like atopic dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis. As Matt mentioned, if it's sebderm, you really like it to be very well demarcated. Um, don't forget about rosacea. So when you see a patient that has red, sensitive, maybe mildly itchy skin on the mid face, look to see if you see papules and pustules because a lot of patients that have rosacea um, present with every product seems to bother their skin. And then of course irritant and allergic contact. So things that will push me more to an allergic process is if I see higher levels of reactivity in areas of thinner skin, so around the eyes and around the mouth, and also skin creases where things can concentrate and sit. So nasolabial folds, melolabial folds, so this is a patient that has that kind of patchy central facial pattern. You'll see kind of accentuation around the eyes and the mouth area. And here, this group of products are things that are left on. So directly applied allergens, so leave-on cosmetics and facial moisturizers. And that's probably the biggest group. And then your ectopic allergens, again, come into play here. So the nail cosmetics and jewelry. So this was a patient that we had in our patch test clinic with that patchy central facial pattern. And you see a lot of accentuation around her melolabial folds and then up under the eyelids. And she had numerous two plus positive reaction to all these fragrance and botanical markers, which she was using like three lotions and three cosmetic creams that were just littered with cosmetic uh, fragrances and botanicals. The next pattern is that inverse pattern. So instead of that mid face, we have this peripheral face, which we call rinse off facial pattern. 
this pattern is more suggestive of an allergic process. And then, especially if you can see the dermatitis kind of arcing in front of the ear or behind the ear and down the neck. So here are two patients that show that kind of arcing, rinse-off pattern. Here the big thing, instead of that leave-on product profile with that patchy central face, this is stuff that's washed off. So shampoos, conditioners, hair dyes, and then facial cleansers. So as it gets rinsed off, patients wash their face and, and move things to the periphery and it runs down the sides of the face. So this was our patient in Patches Clinic and she has that kind of arcing down the lateral face and neck. Really strong three plus blistering reaction to the paraphenylene diamine or hair dye and also to the paratoluene diamine which is an alternative to the PPD, PPD in a lot of hair dyes. So then this pattern, this confluent facial erythema really needs to bring to mind sebderm, and then don't forget about dermatomyositis again. There have been a couple articles wrote by Jeff Callen about this facial erythema in dermatomyositis, so run through your screen with that, and then irritant contact dermatitis, or allergic in patients that are highly sensitive to something to the fact that they're just erupting everywhere. So this was a patient that was highly allergic to a component in their facial moisturizer, here it's the same profile as that patchy central face, leave-on products, but these patients are a lot more allergic, a lot more sensitive. And similar to that first picture that I showed you with the uh, acute dermatitis to the paraphenylene diamine in the hair dye, patients that are extremely allergic will just erupt everywhere on the face. And this is a patient with dermatomyositis that presented with that central confluent uh, facial erythema. And again, just kind of a summary slide for you to review later. So empiric recommendations on patients that have facial dermatitis. Again, we like to temporarily stop all current products and cosmetics. Almost nobody is going to go completely devoid of makeup. So we like to recommend Bare Minerals powdered makeup, which is um, hypoallergenic. And then avoid all hair colorants and permanents. Uh, for nail polish, we uh, recommend the clear nail polish and try to stay away from shellac and acrylic nails. I think for the, the face, you gotta remember to talk about abrasives. So you get a lot of patients that go to the gym and just scrub their face with paper towels. Um, patients that will sit under the shower with extremely hot water. Patients that will clean their face with alcohol or patients that spray tons of aerosolized fragrances. Um, and if you review those, that'll help you get better clinical results. Think about dust mite protectors and pillowcase protectors. Um, free and clear shampoo, Vanacream cleansing bar, Vanacream light lotion, uh, Vanapply as needed. And then um, your topical steroids of choice, antihistamines, and then same regimen where we see them back in a month. If they're doing great, they can reintroduce products slowly. I think there are a couple good options for a paraphenylene diamine free hair dye. So Collar Charm Wella hair dye or Clairol paraphenylene diamine free natural instincts hair dye is a good option. There's a good trick, so if you have the access to the camp or the card and you're suspecting paraphenylene diamine, just go in and enter paraphenylene diamine and generate a list and it'll give you options of hair dyes that are free of paraphenylene diamine. Or if you want them to avoid fragrance, just enter in fragrance and give them a fragrance free list even before you patch test. So the next pattern we'll do are lips. And so here we have three patterns, a border obliteration pattern, a chronic chelitis pattern, and a peripheral rim pattern. So the border obliteration pattern is probably the one that 
everybody thinks of for allergic contact dermatitis. These are the patients that come in that have that picture on the cell phone where they look like a clown. Their lips are just extremely swollen and red. Um, and they tell you that they were out at a party and it may have been a drink, it may have been a lipstick, but they don't know, but it happens all the time. So this is an example of that. And, and here the big players are toothpaste and chewing gum, uh, but really lipstick lip balms are your number one thing to think of. One thing to not overlook would be connubial or consort contact, meaning that they're reacting to something that's on their significant other, their spouse. You know, a classic example is, is a wife that's allergic to fragrance that kisses her husband goodbye every day and she's allergic to the aftershave. So the chronic chelitis pattern is probably the one that I see more often than that really obvious robust allergic pattern. This is the same pattern, but it's much, much more subtle. It has the same allergen profile, um, but instead of that really swollen appearance, you just get a little bit of dryness scaling along the vermilion border with a little bit of loss of that vermilion border. And patients tell you it's chronic, it's dry all the time, they can't get enough chapstick, they're using Burt's Bees products like it's going out of style. Um, and there was a paper that looked at chelitis, chronic chelitis, and they essentially found that a fourth of the patients have atopic dermatitis, a fourth have irritant contact, a fourth have allergic contact, and then the fourth was grouped as not sure idiopathic. So I think it's really important to remember that chelitis is a major feature that we see a lot in um, atopics, especially adult atopics, and it's one of the minor criteria in diagnosis of atopic dermatitis. So this is a patient that we had for patch testing that has that chronic chelitis pattern. It's pretty subtle. I'm not sure that you would even bring this up if she didn't have it as her concern. You just have a little bit of scaling, a little bit of blurring of that vermilion border. So we did patch testing, and this was a really strong 2-plus reaction to her Blistex raspberry lemonade um, directly applied under her patch test. So one of the big things when you test somebody for um, lip dermatitis, even if you're doing a true test, you can put their lip products on as is, and it's a very high yield thing to do. So lipsticks, chapsticks, um, put them under occlusion, a Band-Aid if you don't have thin chambers, something, leave them on for 40 hours and see if you get some kind of a reaction. So the third pattern is this peripheral rim pattern where you see dermatitis around the mouth, but with a rim of sparing, and this is that lick, uh, lip liquor dermatitis. So this is just a nice comparison side to side where with the lip liquor dermatitis, you have that rim of sparing. With the true allergic process, you have a lot of edema and kind of a blowout from that vermilion border. And then we have a summary slide. Um, so empiric recommendations for lip dermatitis. I try to get patients to avoid gum, mints, mouthwash, primarily because they're an irritant. Um, the big thing is they have to stop all lip balms and lipstick. And I'll tell you, patients that use a lot of Burt's Bees products, it's very tough to convince them to stop. It's almost like they're addicted to it. Um, there's an option for toothpaste. So this clear, safe baking soda toothpaste is a good option that's hypoallergenic. Tom's of Maine Silly Strawberry toothpaste is another decent option. And then Vanapply is a good option to try to replace their lip balm. And then same kind of protocol where if they're improved in a month, you kind of reintroduce things slowly and they can use that rote testing and then move to patch testing if they just can't get off of their current products and you haven't found a source. We'll go through a couple patterns on the neck. So just two here, um, neck wear pattern and then a lateral neck pattern. So the neck wear pattern is a nice pattern if you see it. It has this kind of circumferential pattern 
right where you would see something like a scarf or a necklace sit. But don't forget about that plaque right on the posterior neck where you can see a lot of prigonodularis lichen simplex chronicus, but that's where a clasp will sit from a lot of necklaces. And if a patient's allergic to nickel, that's essentially that inferior umbilicus plaque on the back of the neck. So if it is an allergic process, think of things like necklaces, scarves, and shirt collars. So the shirt collar in men can trap a lot of um, irritants and allergens, and it's very snugly fit. This was a patient that was allergic to their necklace, and you can just see that circumferential arcing all the way around the neck, right where his necklace set. The lateral neck pattern, I think, is one that is tough until you see it a couple times, and then you know it and you recognize it. The big player here is atopic dermatitis. You can get allergic processes. Um, if it's more of a fixed eruption, it's less kind of circumferential. It's an atopic dermatitis. So these are two of my atopic patients. And they just continually have this recurrent eruption on their neck. And the neck is a very thin area. Um, it gets rubbed and irritated. If you see an allergic process, it tends to spread out and streak more in that circumferential pattern, even if it's related to perfume, moisturizers, aftershave, nail cosmetics, and jewelry. You, you may have heard of that sign that they call the atomizer sign, where it's right on the anterior neck, where you know it's one perfume spray. I don't know that many people actually just squirt right there. Uh, it tends to be more of this kind of lateral pattern. So we've mentioned nail polish a lot. Um, there was a study that looked at the sites for allergic contact dermatitis with nail polish. And it's kind of roughly a third where a third of it's facial involvement, a third is kind of the neck, and then a third is other. Um, so keep that in mind when you're looking at some of these patterns. Empiric recommendations for neck dermatitis. I mean, my start off is atopic precautions. Uh, moisturizers, topical steroids, antihistamines. I do recommend avoidance of clone, perfume, aftershave. Um, really educating them on tight-fitting collars and neckwear and necklaces that are primarily irritants. If they come in and they've got these beautiful acrylic nails and they're scratching their neck as you're talking to them, then you tell them, okay, look, these acrylic nails may be a problem. Let's avoid them for a while. And then we'll go on to hands. Hands is a little bit more complex. We'll spend a little bit more time there. So unfortunately, hand dermatitis has a pretty poor prognosis, especially if it's a moderate to severe patient. Um, They've done studies that look that the mean duration is 10 to 12 years. So I think one of the big things that you want to start from day one when you see a patient with hand dermatitis is to review the appropriate expectations and, and educate them that the goal here is control. It's not a complete cure. It's similar to when you talk to your patients about psoriasis, that you can make the symptoms and the condition controllable. But we can't necessarily cure your tendency to develop hand dermatitis, and it may linger for quite some time. It's also somewhat defeating in that they've done a lot of studies that show that um, with occupational cases, even if the patient is patch tested, they're allergic to the hair dye and they're a hairstylist, when they stop working, their hand dermatitis doesn't just go away. So it's really tough to talk with a patient and, and tell them, you know, should you consider another line of employment, knowing that your hands may or may not get any better. Normally what I'll do is say, look, don't quit your job. Let's do a uh, leave of absence for a month and see how much better we get. And if you don't get a lot better, then you try to modify the work environment, protective equipment, and they'll continue to work. They've broken it down to where essentially several years later, after leaving work, 50% of the patients have proved 
only 25% of the patients are actually clear, and then 25% of the patients just are persistent. So here you can kind of consider five different patterns. Um, fine motor grip pattern, what I call an arch pattern, a palmar grip pattern, a dorsal pattern, and then what I call an irritant pattern. So the first pattern is this fine motor grip pattern where you have involvement of these first three fingers. And you think a lot about allergic processes in this category, especially something that's occupationally related. So it's something that takes a lot of fine motor skills. And then also um, irritant dermatitis, so frictional irritant dermatitis, patients that handle a lot of papers. Uh, this is where you grab papers. So if you're flipping through books and handling papers all day, you'll get a lot of frictional irritant xerotic dermatitis. So um, occupational things that are high suspicion, hairdressers, um, dentists, florists, chefs, and food handlers. So here's a florist, and you see that kind of contact points with those first three fingers with a fine motor involvement. And then here's a dentist that was allergic to acrylates, and the dentist is reacting on that dominant hand, whereas this was a patient that we had in Patchless Clinic that was a chef that was reacting on the non-dominant hand when they were holding food to chop with. This was another one of our patch test patients. So this is a uh, maintenance worker. And he would go around day to day opening doors with his key. He was allergic to nickel. And then we tested his keys with a dimethylglyoxane test and it was positive for nickel. So that was the source of his contact allergic process. So you move away from that fine motor grip pattern to this central palmar pattern. If you see this pattern, really the last thing that you're thinking is an allergic process. This is more of those endogenous processes. This is your adult atopic hand dermatitis. <clears throat> this is that hyperkeratotic hand dermatitis. Palmoplantar pustulosis is a big one here. Tinea, pomphylox, keratolysis exfoliativa. And then if you've ruled out all these other rare cases of contact dermatitis, and a lot of times, the goal of patch testing with this pattern and a similar pattern that we'll talk about on the feet is to find secondary contact processes that are making an endogenous process more difficult to treat. So a patient that's had adult atopic dermatitis for years and years and has done fine on a standard regimen, all of a sudden is really poorly controlled and you're thinking maybe they developed an allergy to the steroid cream that they're using or something like that. So this is what I call the arch pattern. So if you take your hand and look at it kind of in this manner, you'll see kind of peaks and valleys. If you see vesicles on the peaks of the fingertips, that's a really high yield for an allergic process. And we're not talking about vesicles like you see in a dyshydrotic pattern along the sides of the fingers, but vesicles on the tips. And even in that fine motor grip pattern, anytime you see vesicles on the tips, you really start thinking allergic process. And then especially if it starts to hit that thenar eminence and it starts to spread down the wrist, it's almost like an arrow kind of pointing up the wrist saying, patch test me, patch test me. It's an, really think of an allergic process. The similar thing is we won't talk about axillary contact processes, but when you talk about allergic contact dermatitis under the arms, they talk about sparing of the vault and involvement of the axillary folds. It's the same process. Things that are down have less contact. So this is a patient that we saw that has that kind of arch pattern where you get a lot of involvement on the thenar eminence, kind of shooting up the wrist on the fingers. Here you think about uh, moisturizers, hand sanitizers, soft soaps, and then a really big one is these pre-moistened wet wipes. 
So this was her patch test results. She had a really strong positive 2 plus reaction to the MCI MI. And she was just wiping everything down with these Huggies wet wipes that have MCI MI in them. So this picture up on the right is her hands a month later after she stopped using those. I mean, it looked great. I, I probably had uh, like 170 things on her patch testing. And I didn't see this till the end. And I thought, I was so convinced that this was an allergic process. I went through this whole thing and told her, I know you're going to be allergic to something. So it just goes to show you that when you see that MCI MI, it really is highly relevant. If you find it, I'm sure you'll find something that it's in that they're using. So dorsal hands, this is that irritant pattern which Matt mentioned. Some people used to call this an apron pattern because it kind of looks like an apron draped across the knuckles. But it stops pretty much right across the dorsal knuckles. This is what you see in a lot of nurses that just repetitively wash their hands um, or what you get after working three days straight and you're running through all the sanitizers and hand washing and things like that. Um, I, I consider a dorsal hand pattern a little bit different than just this irritant hand pattern. You may get a little bit of bleed up to that, but if you see this where it's really involving the complete dorsal hand, dorsal fingers, you get a nice demarcation across the wrist, and then you start to get those scratch papules where it's, again, it's spreading up the wrist, it's moving beyond where the exposure is. I have a high suspicion for an allergic contact dermatitis to gloves. So um, particularly nurses and the thigh in the rubber gloves that are used, you'll see this pattern a lot. If you treat them and it responds uh, like you would expect it would to an irritant process, fine. But if you're beating your head up against the wall and you're not clearing it like you should, I would move to patch testing fairly quick. Um, so empiric recommendations on hand dermatitis. Hands are a place where I will see a patient, I will start recommendations, and then I get them back in a month. And if they haven't improved like I want, I move pretty quick to patch testing. Um, we stop all current creams, ointments, soaks, and sprays. I think you find that a lot of patients do a lot of interesting things for their hands. I mean, there's bag balm and Vicks VapoRub and alcohol so soaks and acetic acid. And if you can just tell them, only do what I'm telling you to do for this next month and we'll go from there, usually they're fairly open to that. You've got to review glove use because if you don't do something to protect that barrier, it's going to continue to be a problem. So go through the glove use, talk about dermal um, underlay, white cotton gloves. If it's occupationally related, you have to kind of review the appropriate gloves for the job. Um, so the classic example would be a dentist that's handling acrylates. If they're allergic to acrylates, acrylates, acrylates go straight through most rubber gloves. So there's a, a, a foil type of a glove called a 4-H glove that you can put under a tight-fitting nitrile or vinyl glove. And if you don't do that, the acrylates are going to go straight through. Um, try to get them to buy into minimizing the washing and switch over to more of an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Talk to them about avoiding things that sting and burn when they touch them. So if you have someone that cooks a lot, every time they're handling fresh onions and potatoes, and raw meat and it's stinging and burning their hands, if you can get them to realize that every time it stings and burns, it's injury, it's bothering your skin and get them to wear vinyl gloves when they're cooking, you'll see a lot better results. If it's really crusted like we do for our atopics, think about some antibiotics. Think about pulse therapy under glove occlusion with something like desoxymedazone ointment, a nice hypoallergenic class C corticosteroid. 
um, and really get them to use aggressive moisturizers. So something like a Neutrogena Norwegian hand cream, um, Banapi ointments, Aquaphor ointments, something to really restore the barrier. I, I use a lot of IM Kenalog. I think this is one place where if you get them on the right track, you're gonna do a lot better. So the next pattern we'll do is the feet, and this is the last, last pattern. So on the feet, we have two primary patterns, a dorsal foot pattern and a plantar foot pattern. So the dorsal foot pattern is really that primary pattern that you're gonna see with an allergic process. Um, but just don't forget that you see this pattern a lot with atopics too, because just the friction from the shoes, especially in kids. Um, if it's an allergic process, you're gonna typically see it sparing the web spaces and you'll see it migrating up the ankle. Here are the big things that you think about are shoes, but you don't wanna forget about topical medicaments, either things that are directly applied or things that are retained in the sock and shoe. And then the inverse pattern is a plantar foot pattern. So this is analogous to that palmar grip pattern. It's fairly rare to see this as an allergic process if it's truly just that plantar arch, especially if you see someone that comes in that's got palmar grip pattern and plantar pattern, you're really thinking an endogenous process. I mean, that's the biggest thing is uh, palmar plantar pustulosis. Atopics can get that pattern. And the role of patch testing in this is, again, really to make sure that they didn't develop a secondary allergen to some of their creams or topical products. So empiric recommendations on uh, foot dermatitis. I, I consider patch testing similar to hands in this pattern where I move to that fairly quickly. Um, I make sure that I'm treating any underlying patterns. I always do a KOH on anything on the feet. Uh, you try to look to see if you can modify their environment, so make sure they're not in prolonged, tight, moist environments. Um, changing the socks frequently help. One of the things they've shown is that if, if a patient has hyperhidrosis or they're in a really tight-fitting boot all day long after they take it off at night um, and it stays moist, when the rubber dries and cracks, it starts to leach out allergens more. So one of the recommendations has been to put the shoes on a wooden rack that allows kind of a better airflow and helps the shoe dry more naturally so you're not getting that cracking and popping and releasing of allergens. So I, mean, I think that's probably a reasonable expectation to ask your patient to do. It's an easy enough thing. And that's it if we have any questions.